here at Hamilton Road, we say that our purpose is to see people becoming faithful followers of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to say something about that I don't, I don't think I've said before. We don't claim that we are faithful followers of Jesus Christ. We rather long to see people become faithful followers of Jesus Christ. So think about that for a second. If we're not yet faithful followers, or as Jesus used to put it when he talked to his own disciples, if we're still those of little faith, then if we're going to become faithful followers, we're going to need to change. We're going to need to learn. We're going to need to grow. Think of that other biblical word that we use to describe a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. We, we talk about disciples. Uh, we're disciples of Jesus. We're his apprentices. We're learning from Jesus Christ how to live our lives as Jesus would live them if he were in our shoes. But notice something about both of those images. If this has been lost on you until today, this is a big moment for you. They're both dynamic images. They're both images that require movement, change, or growth. You, you might have a primary image in your own head. I'm a Christian, and that might feel a bit more like a static image. I'm somebody who, who believes things and stands in a certain place. It's a non-dynamic image. It, it's fine. It, it's part of who we are. But these images are dynamic. A follower, you see, is someone who's going somewhere, following the master wherever they lead. A disciple is a person who's becoming something more like the master. Discipleship, following Jesus, this involves change for all of us at every stage along the way. I wonder, are you changing? Are you growing? Do you have a sense of that these days? Perhaps you've grown complacent. I, I don't need to change. I, I'm a Christian. And I'm not as bad as him or her, so I'm okay just where I am. Perhaps you've given up hope that you could change, that God will continue to transform you. I, I, I can't change. I've tried, but I'm stuck, stuck where I am. This is what we want to think about this morning, changing, learning, growing. In Genesis 14, we find Abram changing, learning, and growing. And as we come to the passage this morning, I want you to notice another crisis, signs of growth and growth confirmed. So first of all, the next crisis for Abram. We didn't read the opening chapters of, the opening verses of the chapter this morning, mostly because the names are so difficult. Have a look. It's hard to read. I wouldn't have somebody stand in front of you trying to... To, to read all those names to you. But let me give you, Neil's already done it, let me give you a quick synopsis of the action. If this chapter were made into a film, you'd find it in the action movie section, all right? It's a, there are only words on a page, but there's, a, there's a, some big events behind those words. The action begins with four tyrannical kings 
uh, actually from a quite a remote region. They're, they're way out east, way in Sumer, in Ur of the Chaldeans, modern-day Iraq. And that's where Abram's story, if you remember, began. That's where his family were from. These four kings, under their captain-in-chief, the, the beautifully named Kedar Laomer, they form an alliance. And they've come over to the Dead Sea region to suppress a revolt uh, of five vassal or servant kings. So they're obviously uh, oppressing these guys, bringing tribute from them. They've probably stopped paying up, so they've come to, to suppress this revolt. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, we read, are among the five defeated kings in the Dead Sea region. Depending on who you are, that sounds possibly intriguing, but for most of us, we say highly irrelevant uh, military history. Why, why do we care about any of that? Until verse 12, we learn that the conquering kings carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. Verse 13, at the beginning of our passage, Abram learns that his nephew has been captured, has been kidnapped, and he's facing another crisis. We're thinking this morning, do you remember I said at the outset, we're thinking about growing as faithful followers of Jesus Christ. We want to learn to live by faith and learn to grow in our faith. And sometimes we imagine that growing in faith is something that happens for us when life's going well. When everything else in, is in order. We imagine that if, if God really cared about me growing in faith, then he, he'd get the circumstances of my life right so that I could concentrate on growing my faith. Or, or we might say, well, if, if the Lord called me to, to mission or to, to the ministry, then, I, then I'd grow if he carved out a bit of time for me to go to Bible college or to Union College or to Regent College, then I'd grow. The very least that he could do is to superintend the circumstances of my life, remove the obstacles, take away the distractions. If only God would give me ideal or, or nearly ideal circumstances, then I'd be able to concentrate on growing as a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. Well, as we've studied the life of Abraham, we've seen that simply isn't so. Abraham's circumstances throughout the story have been far from ideal. Here in chapter 14, Abraham's life and his growing faith is interrupted by what's effectively a small international war. Eugene Peterson reflects on this. He says that faith is never allowed to develop quietly in the out-of-the-way corners in the desert. It must deal not only with one God, but with nine kings, human violence, and power struggles. Isn't that interesting? If you're waiting for the circumstances of your life to improve so that you can start or restart a life with Jesus, postponing your learning until the conditions are quite right, forget it. The conditions probably never will be quite right. If you're waiting for your spouse to become more understanding, your children more compliant, your, your financial situation to settle, 
your health to come good before you open your life to the transforming work of God's Holy Spirit, then, then you're missing out the very stuff of life that God uses to transform us. The Lord grows faith in his people by confronting them with outward events. Every bit as much as by comforting them with inner feelings. He trains us by the violence that we face in this world every bit as much as by the movements of the Spirit. Our learning, our growth must start today no matter how difficult our circumstances. So God's invitation to grow in faith comes to Abram in the form of a crisis. Before we look at Abram's response, let's remind ourselves just for a moment about Lot. A couple of weeks ago when we were in chapter 13, we saw that Lot had taken advantage of Abram. Do you remember that? Abram had, they'd realized they needed to part company. The, the land wasn't big enough to support them all. Abram had presented him with a choice. Take your pick. Choose the land where you want to settle and I'll go the other way. What did Lot do? Do you remember? Without a thought for Abram's seniority, without even considering common courtesy, Lot took advantage of Abram's kindness. The selfish pig chose the best land for himself. Now that's who we're talking about. That is the Lot who's just been kidnapped. Serves you right. Abram might be inclined to say, you're getting what you deserve, good riddance. Lot is clearly in great physical danger at this point in the narrative, but that's not even his biggest problem. His biggest problem is that he's far from God. We saw this a couple of weeks ago. We saw that in the Genesis narratives, to move eastward invariably means to move away from God. And Lot's been moving eastward for some time. Now, trace the stages with me. Chapter 13, verse 11, what does he do? He chooses the fertile Jordan Valley instead of the promised land of Canaan. He chooses to look east rather than west. In chapter 13, verse 12, we read that he camps near Sodom. By chapter 13, by, by verse 12 of our chapter today, we discover that he's living in Sodom. By the time we get to the first verse of chapter 19, we'll find that Lot is sitting at the city gate of Sodom. Whenever a person sits at the city gate, that means he's become a respected member of the community, a leader. Lot has ended up sitting on the city council of Sodom, the city of sin. Lot's moved farther and farther and farther from God all the time. That's the Lot who's been kidnapped. That is who Abram's nephew is. So Abram has this nephew who's taken advantage of him, who's deliberately chosen to live far from God. What's he going to do about that? Will we see any signs of Abram growing as a faithful follower of the living God? 
Abram responds with grace towards Lot and with courage in the face of danger. He's growing all right. Cast your mind back to the the areas in particular that uh, Abram had struggled with. Uh, I don't know if you'll remember this straight off. He had two twin failures in chapter 12. And when we remember those, the signs of his growth are clearer still. In chapter 12, we read that he, he... failed to believe that God could provide for him and his family. And so he took them from the land of promise to Egypt. When he went to Egypt, he failed to believe that God could protect him and his family. So he resorted to deception and risked his wife's honor and safety to Pharaoh's whims. He may have failed in Egypt, but we see, we've seen signs now that Abram is changing and that he's growing and that he's learning. A couple of weeks ago, we saw that Abram started to believe that God will provide. He was able to offer Lot pick of the land because he knows that he is a God of abundance who will take care of him no matter what. Today in chapter 14, we we see the the other aspect of his growing trust in God. He's learned to believe that God will protect him. Look at verse 14. As soon as he heard that Lot was in trouble, he acted decisively to help him. This is at, at great inconvenience to himself and at great risk. He risks his life to rescue Lot, this nephew who's far from God. He can only do that because he's learned to trust in God's protection. It takes a bit of skill to read Old Testament narratives well. One lesson that I I hope we've been learning is to avoid making any human character in Scripture a hero. If we do that, we're headed for disappointment. And it would certainly be the case with Abram. So they're not heroes, they're broken, all of them. But it doesn't mean that we can't learn from them and be inspired by moments of faith. Particularly inspiring are the moments of grace where in some way they foreshadow the hero, the true hero of the story, when they point us to Jesus. Think of it for a moment. Abram has helped Lot, who had taken advantage of him. He is living as a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, although he doesn't know it. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Jesus' message was clear. Even when people are taking advantage of you, continue to treat them with grace. Isn't that quite a lesson? A lesson for every faithful follower of Jesus Christ here this morning. When a trusted friend proves unfaithful, we remain faithful. When there's a dispute in our family and we feel that we've been let down, we hang in there and we look for ways to bring restoration. Abram also displayed the character of Jesus Christ when he helped Lot who was far from God. Jesus taught his disciples how to respond to those who don't yet love God. He he told parables 
to explain how his father seeks out these sorry souls with the eagerness of a shepherd looking for one sheep, even though he's got 99 behind him in the pen, with the determination of a woman looking for her wedding ring, the thing that's most precious to her, with the desperation of a father longing for a son to come home. Just last week when we celebrated communion together, we remembered how God acts in mercy toward us. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, isn't this another profound lesson for us to take heart take to heart those of us who want to become faithful followers of Jesus Christ how we think of people who are far from God sometimes we make a virtue of it by how much we keep our distance from them no that colleague in our workplace who swears incessantly and insists on mocking our commitment to Jesus We don't write them off because they're far from God. Our respectable, friendly, ever so pleasant neighbor who doesn't seem to have given God a thought in years, we don't give up on them either. Our son and our daughter who hasn't been seen in a place like this for a long, long time who's been heading east. Whenever people are far from God, we do everything that we can to help them and to help them find their way home. This is the way of Jesus. Does it all sound impossible? This changing, this growing... That's good. Because then we won't try doing it on our own, will we? To change and to grow, to teach an old dog new tricks is impossibly difficult. We know that. So we ask the God of the impossible to do it in us and for us. We need his grace. The new life that we live in Christ We live, says Paul, by grace through faith. We bring our our small seeds of faith, but we need endless grace if we're to grow. This is no ordinary journey we're on. We need God's grace to save us and his spirit to continue transforming us if we're ever going to display even an iota of the character of Jesus Christ. We've seen Abram confronted with a crisis. We've seen signs that he's growing as a man of faith. In the last part of the chapter, we see these signs of growth are confirmed. After defeating the four kings, rescuing Lot, two kings come out to meet Abram. You maybe remember it as we read it. If not, have a look at it. We have the king of Sodom and with Melchizedek, the king of Salem. 
It's a bit hard to know what's going on here, so let me try and open this up for you a little. The first thing I want you to know about these two men is that they stand in complete contrast, okay? On the one hand, we have Melchizedek, a priest of God, and on the other hand, we have the king of the wicked city of Sodom. In one sense, it's just a, it's just a straightforward, crucial moment. Who's Abraham going to fall in with? Which of these guys is he going to cozy up to or, or be a friend of? Melchizedek approaches Abram with bread and wine. That doesn't mean that he wants to have communion with him. It just means he wants to celebrate. It's, it's shorthand for a meal, a feast. You've won the battle, let's celebrate together. He blesses Abraham in the name of God. Have a look. Blessed be Abraham by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And he bless, and blessed be God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand. Notice what he's saying. It's a lovely balance. On the one hand, he's very happy to, to, to be courteous to Abraham, to bless him. But on the other hand, he says that it's God who's not even been named in this chapter so far who's the true hero and the true victor in battle. Blessed be God most high who delivered your enemies into your hands. Abram's met a man who blesses him in God's name and who reminds him that ultimately the battle belongs to the Lord. Abram responds positively to Melchizedek. That, that's, that's interesting. He, he refuses to act as a typical victorious king who, who's enriched himself with the spoils of battle and then, then guards them and holds on to them. Rather than grabbing greedily, he gives readily. He gives one-tenth of his plunder uh, to, to this priest of God. And as he does so, I think he's, he's signaling his understanding that God is the true victor in this battle and that everything he's ever received is a gift. It's worth pausing here for a moment to think about God's people giving to God. Abram's happy to give one-tenth of his plunder to Melchizedek, the priest of God, because he understands that everything he has is from God. All his possessions are a gift. And it's still the same today. Faithful followers of Jesus Christ give sacrificially to God because they understand that everything they have is a gift. In the final analysis, we've earned nothing ourselves. We're not self-made as we imagine. What do you mean, Christoph? But sure, I've worked hard to earn my money. The health and the work itself are a gift from God. I've studied many years and passed lots of exams. If that's the case, be grateful. Haven't you realized yet that gifts of the intellect are just that? They are gifts. Not everyone has them. Not everyone is equally able to, to earn 
significant amounts of, of money and wealth. Health, intellect, work itself, they're all gifts. We simply make use of these gifts for the duration of our lives by God's grace. People who understand that find themselves givers. It's all been given. I'm only, I'm only just given a tiny bit back. In contrast to Melchizedek's hospitality and blessing, the king of Sodom approaches Abram without hospitality, without a welcome. When he finally does speak, verse 21, he's bossing Abram around and he's telling him what he should do. Give me the people and, and keep the goods for yourself. The stuff, all of it's yours. Abram won't accept goods from the king of Sodom. He doesn't want a pagan king's wealth. He knows what would happen if he did. This king of Sodom would say, I made Abram great. I made him all he is today. Look by the opening way, look by the way at the opening verse of chapter 15. Abram turns down the spoils of battle and in the very next breath, the Lord reassures him, I am your very great reward. The true servant of God doesn't need human patronage. Abram knows that God and God alone will make something of him. So he gives Sodom and its king a wide berth. Just before we wrap up this morning, I want to take you one last time to this mysterious character, Melchizedek. That name, it means king of righteousness. We're told also that he's the king of Salem or Jerusalem. Salem is derived from the Hebrew word shalom, which, as you may know, is the, the Hebrew word for complete wholeness or peace. So this guy is the king of righteousness and peace. That's quite something. Those are good titles. But there's more. We're told, verse 18, that he's a priest of the Most High. Now that's weird. It's 500 years before God will give his people the laws, the rules to institute a priesthood in Israel. But here he is. From out of nowhere, a priest of the Most High. What, what does that even mean? I'm not going to try too hard to answer all those questions this morning. What I am going to do is take you to the place in the New Testament where Melchizedek's role in God's story is explored further. Turn with me. Hebrews chapter 7 on page 1000, or, or sorry, 1205. 1205. Hebrews chapter 7. While you're looking that up, let me remind you that the book of Hebrews, there's a strong melody line that runs through the book. The core message of the book is that Jesus is greater. Greater than all the elements of the Jewish faith which he's come to fulfill. And at one point in his argument, in the closing verse of chapter 6, the author 
starts talking about Jesus in terms of this mysterious Melchizedek. Have a look. Closing verse of chapter 6. Jesus, he says, has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The writer goes on to explain what he has in mind. He says, verse 3, without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Forget for a moment the strange stuff about Melchizedek's origins. The writer says he's a priest forever. And that in that regard, Jesus Christ is like him. Now, what the writer is really trying to do is to show us how Jesus is greater in this case than the Levitical high priests who served in the temple in Jerusalem. He says, verse 23, that there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Okay. Why is any of this important? For those of us who want to grow as faithful followers of Jesus Christ. Here's why. Verse 25. Because he has an eternal priesthood. He is complete. He is able to save completely. Those who have come to God through him. Because he always lives to intercede for them. Brothers and sisters. Do you hear that? We have been thinking this morning about change, about growth, about learning. We've seen Abram growing in his faith in the living God, wondering whether we could possibly grow too. You can change. And so can I. And here's why. We have a great high priest. And he's bringing our needs just now to the Father. He's able to save us completely in all the ways that we need to be saved. His name is Jesus and he's our high priest forever. Isn't that just glorious? Knowing that he's for us, knowing that he'll never give up working for us, knowing that he gives us his spirit to help us grow as his faithful followers, knowing that by his spirit he'll disciple us till the very end? Doesn't that just flood you with hope? Doesn't that make you want to go again, to live by faith in him, and to learn, and to grow? Let us pray. Uh, Father God, we thank you for this promise of your word that we can change. That you not only save people, but you transform them. So Lord, we pray about our growth. Lord, some of us have become complacent and we've said, I'm not that interested in growth. I'm happy where I am. Lord, shake us up and stir us. Show us how far we are 
from being restored in the image of Jesus. Lord, some of us are, are despondent. We fear that even though we long to change, it'll never happen. Lord, show us afresh your purposes for us. That your grace which saves us is the same grace available now to transform us. Lord, pour out your spirit on us and make us new. Make us into people one day unrecognizable from who we are today. Because Jesus has become so much more evident in our lives. We pray it in his name and for his glory. Amen.